Hello, everyone. This is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today, we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. We're talking about religion today, and let me be the first to say uh, that I fully believe in keeping Christ in uh, Christ. I hate this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> I much prefer the blinky lights over the guy on the cross. Mm. It's just safer. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, it's it's the holidays again. So we're uh, yeah, we're here. Welcome back to Thieves, Ropes, and Renegades. My name is Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And we're joined today. We got a full crowd in the kitchen today. We got uh, we got Michael Arnett with us, who you might remember from our John Paul Jones and Rock Braziliano episodes. Good to see you. We also have Kyle Graper, uh, who you will remember from being chained as our hostage in the basement. And Kyle, a basement fame. As a member of the next level of humankind, I appreciate the presence. And why is he talking about that, too? The next level of humankind. Well, we're talking about a little religious group today. Um, they didn't have much of an impact. Nothing, nothing, uh, nothing that freaky really happened to them. And of course, I'm totally kidding. We are talking about the cult Heaven's Gate. Uh, if you've never heard of Heaven's Gate, Heaven's Gate was a New Age, millenarian, UFO-obsessed, esoteric cult that took root in the 1970s in California under the leadership of Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. The thing that sucks about Marshall Applewhite is, is a, uh... University of Texas football fan, I am going to call him Major Applewhite at least yeah. one time as we do this. And I apologize in advance to Major and his lovely family. Just call him Herf. Oh, that God. is true. Yeah. Um, and so Heaven's Gate would go on to have 39 of their members commit mass ritual suicide in 1997 in order to reach an extraterrestrial spacecraft hiding behind the hale Bob Comet. Now, this will be a three-part series, and in it we, we, we will examine the lives of the cult's founders and what it was about their practices and beliefs that would lead 39 people to take their own lives based on what people would consider to be an utterly empty promise. And then we're going to go on to examine the actual events of March 26, 1997, and their aftermath. I'd also like to take the time to say that the focus of this series is not going to be on making fun of the members of Heaven's Gate for the things they believed, although some of them are pretty out there. Instead, our focus is going to be on Applewhite and Nettles and how they shape the minds of their cult members to make them do these things willingly. Um, I, I do not make the same promise. <laughs> well, I think it's already that, that <laughs> well, because like the website still exists. We'll talk about the website yeah, a little more, incredible. but it's like it's got like weird flash shit on it, and there's just like word art. It was the nineties. It was yeah. apparently it still is. I, I, I think this that website is still being operated by Angel Fire. It certainly got that look. So, uh, it, I, I think it's our view that more than so than having 39 people committing suicide, most of these people are instead, in a way, victims of these leaders and their manipulation. And as such, I think we were, we were going to try our best to treat them with respect and dignity, despite the strangeness of their beliefs and the nature of their passing. There's a lot of misconceptions regarding cults, and one is that cults are all evil. Yeah. And they're not. I mean, like... The ones that we're going to talk about are definitely more malicious than other ones, but they're definitely not. I mean, right now, there's probably 5,000 cults in the United States. That's what they estimate, yeah. And that, that's what Margaret Singer wrote, and Margaret Singer is somebody we're probably going to talk about uh, over and over again. Um, she was a very famous author uh, out of Berkeley, wrote Cults in Our Midst, uh, did a lot of kind of breakdown of the, of the stuff we're going to talk about, but it's cults are as cults do is kind of like the joke. Yes, but it's definitely a thing. Like there, a lot of these cults are are definitely a religious sect, but they're towards like betterment and things like that. Now, Heaven's Gate's not going to be quite the same way no. as we'll get into. But there, like I said, there are quite a few misconceptions regarding cults in the United States. Like not everybody that joins a cult is going to die. Like you're not you're not going to pop your Nikes on and take that last nap. Well, I think one of the problems with that is the reason that that misconception exists is the fact that all the cults that the world knows about are pretty much suicide cults. We, mm -hmm. we, we know about Jonestown. We know about Heaven's Gate. 
Um, we know about the, the, the death cult in Japan. Um, oh, sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of like people with extreme political views. They get the highest profile coverage. Yeah. Exactly. You either, you either burn out or you last long enough to become a recognized religion. Absolutely. Cults plus time yield religion. Yes. It's, I mean, most, of the, most of the major religions today started as cults. How did L. Ron Hubbard bypass that? Didn't take a whole lot of time. Didn't take a whole lot of time. Well, I think uh, Hubbard... He took know. the Joseph Smith route of uh, a good 30 years gets you a good foundation if you do it well enough. Well, Hubbard, I think both Hubbard and Joseph Smith had, a, um, had an environment that was incredibly conducive to what they were trying to do. And, and as, as we'll see today, sci-fi nerds will get you a long way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, and, and let's also not forget that Joseph Smith started the Church of Latter-day Saints in upstate New York in the 1820s and 30s. We, we, I mean, it was known as the burned-over district because of the sheer amount of new offshoot religions that were starting up. Like, there was a guy who, who communicated, he, he preached only through shouting and horse sounds. <laughs> Praise God! <laughs> like... It, it's it's covered in that uh, the history of America is covered in this kind of stuff. So before we move forward with the, <laughs> so that does it for our lighthearted uh, kind of introduction <laughs> to everything. Well, no, but it, so before we, I thought Catherine the Great was in the room again. <laughs> oh no, way <laughs> over. Catherine the Great is the new cabin boy reference. Yeah. Like <laughs> we just keep popping those out. So um, before we move forward, I'd like to address our sources. Um, so we have a, a couple primary sources. The first is the book Heaven's Gate: America's UFO Religion by Professor Benjamin Zeller, who is a professor of religion at Lake Forest College in Illinois. This is an excellent book. It delves into not so much the history of the founders, but into the practices of Heaven's Gate. And it delves deep into it and analyzes it to a wonderful, wonderful degree. Uh, we also have a second book, Closing the Gate by Deb Simpson. Now, this book is pr uh, it's a pretty harrowing read because it's by a woman whose brother was a member of the cult and who ended up taking his own life in 1997. And it's an exploration into watching their relationship with their brother devolve over the course of a decade and a half as he becomes more and more and more and more involved in this organization. Uh, we, I also used uh, Making Sense of he the Heaven's Gate Suicides. It's an essay by a guy named Robert Balch, who is a renowned sociologist from the University of Montana and who has also heavily researched other insular organizations such as the Love Family and the Aryan Nations. Um, I also highly recommend the podcast, Heaven's Gate. I know you do as well, Mike. Yes, I do. Uh, Glenn Washington, who actually came from the Worldwide Church of God, which yeah. is the reason that they brought him in. He's a former cultist himself. Yes. Um, and it, which over that's, a, uh, that's a pretty distressing listen. I, I'll warn folks in advance. Yeah. If you haven't, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about is extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, some of the source material that I use, and I, I'll, I'll go back to, and not in this episode, but later on, I watched all the videos. The exit yeah. videos is, is what they're known as. I watched and them too. It's, uh, so let's, uh, let's take a moment for, for some of our listeners, uh, Maybe skip this one. Maybe skip the next couple yeah. because it's it's going to get really profoundly bizarre and it's very upsetting. Yeah, this is a story I think you have to explore in the right frame of mind. Yeah. Well, this is one of the few stories, and I know because it's the most recent of anything that this podcast has done, that actually has video, that actually has yeah. rec vocal recordings of the people that committed these acts. So it's it's much more difficult. The yeah. website still exists. If you need to be lulled to sleep tonight, you can listen to hours of Applewhite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's... You want to be lulled into a nightmare-filled sleep. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you, you do make a good point. There is precious little video of Gregor McGregor. <laughs> we did we didn't find that one website where they're trying to start it back up again. Yeah, starting to start I reached out to again. those guys and nobody ever got back. They still haven't sent me I, a passport in the mail. Yeah, I don't know what the hell is going on. It had to have been like a student project or something. But, but we did see Rock Brosliano's mustache. Mm. Oh, oh, from yeah. the old and wood carvings. But there are beautiful there are other nineteen seventies porn There are other other ones. He always has a wacky mustache, but it's usually a different kind of mustache. Yeah. You can find that on our on our social media if you follow along. But yes, the Heaven's Gate podcast is excellent. It examines the process of the cult's formation, their practices, and the final events of 97. 
through the viewpoints of family members, ex-members of the cult, and even through a member of the cult who still believes in Applewhite and Nettle's message. <laughs> and that's the thing. They're still around, technically. There's not many members. I, I, I've seen anywhere between two and four, but they still maintain a website. It's a crappy website, but it's a website. And, uh, and it's one. Yeah. It, it's one gift short of a dancing baby. It really is. Oh no! Now that's all I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want me to ruin everybody's night for you? Two words: hamster, hamster dance. dance. Oh, mean, Kyle, well, you just your your face just darkened. <laughs> guys, little bub died today. Oh shit. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Rappy little bub. Little bub. That sucks. So how many like famous internet cats are there? Because the Olong Johnson cat died. Yeah. Angry cat's dead. Grumpy cat passed away. Angry, grumpy cat. And little bub. Like how many do we have left? Uh, the one that was like the I can't has cheeseburger. He he passed away too. Like man. The uh, the big one. The salad cat's still kicking. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. What about the one with then, the What about the one with the bread on his head? Oh, that was any number of cats. I don't, but I cannot confirm the original cat breading cat. Mm. Oh, man, that sucks, little bub. Huh. R.I.P. Uh, one of my one of I'm my favorite bands is Murder by Death, and little bub was their neighbor, and they did Aww. they did it. They were little bub for Halloween one year. They did a they, like the little bub show, like the podcast. Man, that sucks. So I see where our focus is tonight. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just shocked. I, I'm gonna, I am a being of pure internet. I'm going to do some Taylor Swifting on the way home and. In his honor. I'm Faith Hill until the day I die. (laughs) (laughs) So, before... So, we're going to start exploring the the story of the founders of the cult. But before we do that, what constitutes a cult? Yeah, what what is a cult? I I mean, I think a cult is an offshoot offshoot religious group out of the mainstream. But it's not necessarily religious. Not necessarily religious. No, I mean, it, it can be... If you look at how people get caught in these things, sometimes it's a it's a business. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like a retreat. Like it's not necessarily it's like MLMs. You mean? Yeah, it's it's yeah. not necessarily religious. Let's see what Merriam-Webster. What do they call it? I think the presence of a singular leader or small group of leaders, as we'll see yes. here with T and O, um, is definitely necessary. And this is one of the things that. Rob, you and I talked about, I have a background in the charismatic movement. Yep. And in the charismatic movement, one of the things that I've noticed is that their leadership tends to be, non, or the, the churches themselves tend to be non-denominational. And because they're non-denominational, there's no hierarchy or structure beyond the pastor, yeah. which makes them, and, and, and I hesitate to call the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement cults, but... When you don't have someone over top of you saying, hey, you can't do that, it's the breeding ground. And it also grooms the followers to be exactly that. Follow blindly. Well, my pastor says this. Prime example is Jim Jones. Yes. You know, you reach a point where Jim Jones and the People's Temple, they were... They were doing incredible things. And they were pretty, from, and they were pretty in the, big, too. They had 7,500 oh yeah, members it, at their yep. height. And they were considered part of the, the, the mainstream Christianity Pentecostal yeah. movement. And it wasn't until Guyana where things started coming out. Yeah. And, 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 you know, obviously the, the death of Congressman Ryan led to their revolutionary yeah. suicide. But they were feeding the homeless. They were, you know, they were giving clothes away. They had, you know, free stores and charity stores, nursing they, homes, all of that. They, yeah. they, 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 they were doing wonderful things. Yeah. So stand, they're standing up for worthy causes. So I think the presence, yeah. the presence of a a very powerful leader without a hierarchy to keep him in place is the first thing that I see. Is the key ingredient. It's yeah. in. What did I what did I call it earlier on the phone, Padre? I called it a uh, uh, an unregulated uh, market. Right, hmm. right. Yeah. Un- unregulated. I'd say that's the word I was looking for that that you had mentioned earlier, and it it's there. I think when it comes to religious cults, eschatology, um, and if you're going to look that up, 
ladies and gentlemen, it starts with an E. Yes. Don't look up scatology. You're not going to get the same result. Do it, you cowards. <laughs> you deserve what's coming to you for your poor spelling. Eschatology being the, the study... It can be applied to any real religion, but it's primarily focused around the Judean Christ, Christ, uh, Judeo-Christian religions of the end of things, the end of life, the end times. The end of the age. The end, the of, end the of, age. of all life. Yes. The, the, the end of life as we know it, I should say. Yeah. Because uh, in the Judeo-Christian tenet, we believe that there's life beyond here. Um, but most cults, most religious cults, um, Applewhite... Uh, Sun Young Moon, um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, they all had a focus. Their central tenet of the things that they believed was, we're at the end. Yeah. Which brings us to the millennianarians. I can't pronounce it. Millenarians. The millenarian cults. And I, I believe it, we were talking about this on Saturday. I think the reason that we see such an outcropping of groups like this is that you go back to, we were talking about this, you go back to uh, the year 1000, you had the flagellates, and you go to the German, Germany in, in the year 1000, there were a lot of people, doomsayers that were saying, this is it, this is oh, the yeah. way it ends. And it, it comes back around again, right around Y2K, yeah. Because uh, there's just something about the triple zeros that, hey, Jesus is coming back, and we all got to be. And I, and I Everybody wanna, look busy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to come back to that in a minute or two. Um, but uh, so religiously based mass suicide is nothing new. I mean, for centuries, people have been killing themselves in large groups for reasons of ritual, persecution, or sheer desperation. I mean, we have the the Jewish zealots that killed themselves at Masada rather than surrender to the Romans back in the first century A.D. You have the uh, the Montanists in the seventh century, which were a Christian offshoot group who, rather than submit to the will of the Byzantine Emperor Leo the Third, instead locked themselves in their churches and set them on fire. Um, you have the Great Schism of the Russian Church in the seventeenth century. Dozens of groups of so-called "quote unquote" old believers underwent what they called fire baptism. They burned themselves to death rather than acquiesce to new church doctrines. You know, in Bali in the early twentieth century, there were several events known as puputans. <laughs> uh, when large groups of indigenous Balinese went forward to their deaths in these large ritual per, uh, processions when they were about to be overwhelmed by Dutch colonial forces, you have thousands of Japanese soldiers who over the course of World War II commit ritual suicide instead of surrendering to the Allies. And then most famously, of course, November of 1978, you have 912 members of the People's Temple led by Reverend Jim Jones who were either killed or committed suicide by ingesting cyanide at their compound in Guyana after murdering a U.S. congressman and several others. Um, in fact, there is a sitting U.S. congresswoman from California, Jackie Spire, who, su- who survived that attack. I believe she was shot three times, crawled so. into she the jungle. 22, 23 at she the time? She played dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They said she had ants up to six inches into her wounds. Good Christ. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, though, the 1990s, stood out as a time when death cults were seemed like they were absolutely everywhere. I mean, we have the Branch Davidians, which were an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, who hold themselves mm-hmm. up in a compound outside Waco, Texas, after a botched goat fuck of an ATF raid to capture their leader, an apocalypse-obsessed preacher named David Koresh. After a 51-day siege, the Davidians burn the compound down with everyone in it, or there are other more conspiratorial stories that the ATF did it, the FBI did it. Either way... It was a cluster. It was a clusterfuck. Yeah, it was just an absolute disaster. It was so much dick-waving on both sides. It was just a nightmare. And then it cost a lot of people, a lot of innocent people, women and children, elderly folks. It cost them their lives. Yeah, 82 Branch Davidians, including about two dozen children Mm -hmm. and four ATF agents, died over the course of the whole affair. In 1994, an esoteric cult claiming to be a descendant order of the Knights Templar, known as the Order of the Solar Temple, which Mm -hmm. were based primarily in Switzerland and Quebec, I believe. Yep. Began a series of ritual group suicides that involved gunshots to the head and then the immolation of ritual temple houses, all set off by the ritual murder of a three-month-old baby who was seen as the Antichrist by the Order's leaders, two guys named Joseph DeMombro and Luke Jure, and that involves stabbing the child over 30 times with a sharpened wooden stake. Over the course of four separate events, over two and a half years, 74 members of the OST ended up taking their lives. 
1995, in Tokyo, a cult known as Om Shinrikyo, or the Om Immortal Mountain Wizard Association. Oh, they're the party group. Um, the Immortal Wizard Mountain Association. Which, this is what we, happens when you let nerds talk to each other. Yeah. It's, 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 Kyle, how is it as a member of the 501st, by the way? It's, it, it really isn't much better. Hail Satan. <laughs> um, yeah, they're led by a fat blind dude named Shoko Asahara who could apparently levitate using just his butt. Um, but they built their beliefs around a mixture of Buddhism, Hinduism, Christian end times prophecy, and anime. I'm not joking. They went for mass murder instead of mass suicide. They launched a sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway system, which killed 13 and severely injured more than 5,000. And should have killed thousands yeah, had I don't, they I not don't know been did, idiots. Like, they intended it to cause half a million fatalities. Well, if you are going to start a cult, that's the way to go. Yeah. They, no. had a, they had an attack helicopter. They bought an attack helicopter from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I want an attack helicopter. Well, we got to get on our yeah, cult. But they all had heads full of acid. Do you want to fly an attack helicopter with a head full of that's, acid? That that's, would the, be, that's the only I'd time I would fly I'd rather fly it with a head full of acid than be a passenger when the pilot has a head full of acid. Do you want to try to fly acid? the thing when the control rod turns into a snake? Yes. Hell yeah, I do. <laughs> so their intent was to blame the attack on both the U.S. and Russia, instigating a nuclear apocalypse known as Harumageddon. It, it was, it's the plot to Akira. Yeah. After which they would... Holy fuck, it's not that far off. <clears throat> after which they would emerge as a ruling order. And in 2000, just after the Millennium Turnover, a group in Uganda known as the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, uh, who ecstatically predicted the end of the world on December 31st, 1999, underwent a series of mass ritual suicides that can uh, claim the lives of 925 people. That's not even original. No. December 31st, 1999. That's just like, okay. That's every guy with a sandwich board and a Prince album. Right. Prince Prince didn't die for that. No. His purpleness didn't die for that. His royal badness. (laughs) So why were the 1990s such a boom time for cults, and especially doomsday cults in particular? I think we have some ideas to why. Now, we touched on the becoming millennium. There is always that symbolic importance of the three zeros that you said, Mike. I mean, right. just having that tick over and the idea of the millennium in the book of Revelations, the thousand years, I mean, for some reason, people coalesce around the idea of that round number. And people look for patterns and shit, whether they know it or not. Exactly. It's a natural tendency. It's yeah. A, it's, 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 it's our human nature. Yeah, it's, yeah, just, it's, it's what we do. Functions. You know what else is kind of human human nature? Socialism, looking for assurance, looking for stability, which is exactly what these fucking cult leaders do. And that's they mm-hmm. prey on these people. Yeah. Now, I, I think another thing is the end of the Cold War. I think there there is a constant underlying consideration from the end from the 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 nineteen fifties through to the end of the eighties, through to the end of the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, that people always have an apocalypse on their mind. And I think it becomes so culturally ingrained, it becomes like some sort of, even for people who were very, very young during the Cold War, it becomes like a, like a Jungian cultural memory almost of this idea of an always impending apocalypse, the idea of mutually assured destruction. And I think for a lot of people, once that U.S.-Soviet uh, butting of heads is removed, the potential nuclear war between the two is removed, people want to replace that with something. It totally ruins the day after. Steve yeah. Gutenberg's best work. <laughs> wow. You mean uh, that movie you did, weird movie you did with the robot wasn't wasn't his best work? What was that called? Oh, Short Circuit. Short Circuit? Short Circuit. Number five alive. No, no. Johnny five. Johnny it's, five. Not number five. Yeah, yeah, Johnny five. Your mother was a snowblower. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there's a natural tendency to replace that more, that, that more uh, secular impending doom with... I think a lot of people do turn to eschatology. It it makes perfect sense. People identify themselves as a society based off who the opposition is. Mm -hmm. And when the big bad is no longer there, there has to be another avenue. And that goes through all semblances of life. Um, if, if you know, look at film in that yeah, same time period. Say, just there's just a look massive at cinema. shift in the late '80s and early '90s because suddenly the narrative of every action film we had for 30 years no longer exists. You can yeah. you can tell, and I had a conversation the other day about this. You can tell geopolitical uh, allegiances 
based solely on Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. The bad guy in his movie is always like it start, there's Russians when it starts, and then all of a sudden there's like drug lords and, and I, uh, gun I, runners in in the in the like in what the hell was the name God, of the hand of something, Allah or something? something in True Lies. So I was going to say, I then we like go a, Middle Eastern. I I, I I kid you not, I did a ten page paper in college about how True Lies represented the shift of the end of the Cold War in right. modern action cinema. Yeah. But it keeps going on, and then it's like shadowy government organizations, yeah. and it's watch Schwarzenegger's movies, and you'll be able to tell exactly. Mm-hmm. You can you if you don't know the year it came out, you'll be able to be within like two or three. There's a reason why the new Terminator film involves a 15 minute segment where the new Terminator cuts his way through a border patrol facility. Yeah, but what about Kindergarten Cop and Twins? Ooh. Hmm. You should always be afraid of Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito, like Wu-Tang, is for the children. Yeah. He does. <laughs> so, Kyle, what you're suggesting is that we live in a world where humans are tribalistic? No. <laughs> we are fiercely independent organisms that think on our own. Lone wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Very fine people. <laughs> so... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I think so. I think I think there's another factor too that, that plays into this. It's the emergence of new age philosophy and esotericism into a wider market as worldwide communication capabilities grow. Now that you you start to see these things on television, you have the emergence of the internet. You have you know people have have access to more phone lines. It's things like that that these ideas can spread more easily. Um, and I think there's the emergence of a new consciousness regarding ecology and possible climate disaster. I mean, the 80s was a, a terrible decade. Let's, I mean, from 79 to 89, you had Three Mile Island. You had mm-hmm. uh, the Bhopal disaster. You had Chernobyl. You had um, consciousness emerging of the hole in the ozone layer back in the 80s. I, I think the idea of us possibly actively bringing about our own extinction through affecting Earth's climate became a... Uh, a very very popular idea in the '90s as well. Thank God we fixed all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except for the Chinese won't stop won't stop gawking about it all the time, pushing their conspiratorial climate change policies. And there is just the idea of eschatology in general. I, it's a very very popular idea. Again, as you mentioned, Mike, it's very very hard to remove that from a lot of um, from a lot of of ingrained religions within the public and especially I think once you go further and further into the evangelical movement and and fundamentalism as well you have so many people these many many millions of people who are raised with these ideas that it's so ingrained that a an offshoot that even if they try to leave their the faith they're in an offshoot religion that has these ideas ingrained as well is more palatable to I imagine there's a purity in just accepting that there's no future and the only time you have is the current, and then the paradise you've built for yourself after the fact. Well, the one of the things that I had to do in my own study and my own tradition is come to the realization that the most popular evangelical misnomer, is what I'd call it, is the idea that the rapture, which everybody, for some reason... Most of Protestant Christianity believes that the rapture exists and can be found somewhere in the Bible when in actuality it was, it was a fire and brimstone preacher in mm-hmm. New Hampshire in the late 19th century that developed the entire philosophy of the rapture and millennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism. It's again, and it's it those all damn millennials. Shoots off of that. <laughs> yeah, the that is funny that the rapture isn't an, almost an entirely American idea. Right, but it it's gone global. It really I mean, has. It, it, as far as evangelical Christianity is concerned, um, what I don't understand is why aren't we comfortable here while we're here? You know, why are we looking to the when you look at cults? It's hey, let's get the hell out of here. When and I think it, what that tends to do is it tends to bring people that need to be groomed that way. Yeah. Uh, people that are uh, there's the there's a word I'm looking for right now that I can't find, but they're they're the outcasts of society. They're the loners. They're the people that have been marginalized. 
People um, who are disenfranchised, people who are on the, on the fringes. Or people that are getting rid of things. Yeah. Reductionalists. That's Thank the you. word I was looking yeah. for. People that are trying to reduce absolutely everything in their lives. And they become very, very fertile ground for these cult leaders because of that. Because they're looking for something better, something greater, something beyond what we have here. And if you read Revelation the way most eschatologists read it that's what they're promising yeah they would the, the new jerusalem the heaven on earth the the better bodies uh the uh, we'll, we'll find out with Applewhite. that's the these we're, we're going to get rid of these vehicles to get these greater more wonderful vehicles that don't need sex and don't need all of the trappings of what we have here and the reason that these followers are groomed that way is because that's what they're lacking in their lives right now. Well, and there's so they want that greater. And there's also something very attractive, I think, about about the idea of surviving great tribulation to get there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's I think that appeals to a lot of people, especially if you don't actually have to do the tribulation. You can step back and fix yourself and fix the current situation you're in, or you can ride out until the end of days. And the Great Apocalypse will do it all for you. It's a hell of a lot easier than, like, owning up to the fact you can't balance a bank account. And it's, well, it's a surrendering of control, I, I th- in a way, I think. And I think there's a group of people that don't want control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a great majority of people in this world that don't have any desire to control their own destinies. They want to be told what to do yeah. and how to do it. One of the common threads in the people that we're going to find that join cults uh, is, like I said before, these people are looking for some kind of assurance. Yeah. They, they, need, they need something stable. They're, they're not necessarily dumb or gullible. Uh, they're typically a little more impressionable because they're in a very raw emotional state. And Applewhite finds these people. John Jones, like, he found those people. Oh, these yeah. guys are very good at finding their target audience. And they're, yes, it's predatory. They they are. It, and and I, I want to wrap up this portion of the conversation with, I, I kind of have a theory as to why there are sort, certain cycles as to times when cults are more prevalent. And I, I think that when your culture or your country or your economy goes through a certain quote-unquote boom time, uh, whether it be you know the cultural boom time of the hippie counterculture or the financial boom time of the 1980s, you know, the heyday of Wall Street, and then this idea that everyone's supposed to be newly prosperous or everyone's supposed to be discovering this new sense of self or discovering this new sense of their own of, of their own independence or whatever. Or whenever these periods happen, you know, the 1810s and the 1820s and, and when all these new offshoot religions were emerging in places like upstate New York, coming off of, you know, that, that idea of the new country, the new birth. Okay, now we've been around for 30 years. It's not quite so new and shiny. I think there's going to be a lot more people who are left behind out of that than we think. Um, you know, who don't get to share in the prosperity, whether it be economical, cultural, whatever. And I think these people become more vulnerable. Uh, become more vulnerable. They become a little bit more disenfranchised. They're afraid. They're let down. There is a vulnerability that does emerge in greater numbers than you normally see. And I think there are those periods. And, and I think when you have large groups of these people feeling that way, feeling left out, then calls suddenly have a much larger recruiting pool to pull to, to choose from. And I think that it's just the opportunity that is there grows. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Guys. I mean, what I'm hearing is that right now is the perfect time to start a cult. Possibly. It's up there. You heard it here. I don't know. I heard somebody's already doing it. Yeah, it was like Kanye already did it. Yeah. Well, he's doing it. He bought the property. (laughs) We can't let Kanye beat us to this. But we also, (laughs) now, now, today, we also have things like social media and and the ubiquity of the internet that actually, I think, can make toxic cult environments a little tougher to maintain. Yeah. Scientologists would argue with that. Well, but Scientology's numbers are dropping as well. Fair. They're circling the wagons, right? They're going through a period right now of circling the wagons, and we're actually seeing that right now. People are leaving um, the Latter-day Saints in greater numbers than before. I think whether that's a fun- actually a function of the modern day and the modern and, and having the resources we have to hand, I don't know. But I, I think that is... 
I do think the dissemination of information helps that. I, I think that if, might. If you can get the whole narrative mm-hmm. before you commit your entire life to it. It shakes it up a bit. I think that might actually get in the way of a new cult boom time. I'm not saying they don't exist and they won't be formed. I mean, I'm up for the challenge. Particularly on the point with the Latter-day Saints, though. I just don't want to pay taxes. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Hey, we could start a Twitter mass murder cult. <laughs> you can you follow us on social media. Even if we don't start an actual cult, we could start a band, and that's the name. Twitter. That's exactly there what we he go. meant when he <laughs> said that. NSA. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, any, anything else to put in, guys, before we actually start exploring the stories of the founders of Heaven's Gate? Nope. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't even know what the hell else can be said about this. And this is this is a topic that different psychologists have been looking at for pretty hard for the last forty years. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really the Sharon Tate thing really kicked everything off. Mm. Well, we will examine that a lot in the next episode, I think, as we as we talk about the development of their of their practices yeah. and, and the manipulation that led them there. And I do know what to say next. Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. Was born on Mar- uh, May seventeenth, nineteen thirty-one, in the tiny town of Spur, Northern Texas. It's a Marshall Herf Applewhite Sr. and his wife Louise. And he was the youngest of four children. Now Applewhite Sr., who was normally called by his middle name Herf, which mm-hmm. Applewhite Jr. would also get to get into the habit of, was a successful and popular Presbyterian minister. And young Marshall had a fairly intense religious upbringing. He attended Corpus Christi High School and went on to Austin College where he studied philosophy, but he had his religious views mellow out somewhat, and he was known for his winning extrovert personality and running several campus clubs, including the Acapella Group, the Judiciary Council, and the Association of Prospective Presbyterian Ministers. This actually makes more sense when you find out that Austin College is a Presbyterian school. Ah, yeah. uh, now, Marshall graduated in 1952 with a philosophy degree and immediately enrolled at Virginia's Union Theological Cemetery, a Presbyterian divinity school, but soon after, he left to go and pursue his true love, music. And he was hired as the music director of a church in North Carolina. Now, he enrolled in the Masters of Music program at the University of Colorado, but in 1954, he was drafted by the U.S. Army and spent two years in the Army Signal Corps, serving in New Mexico and Austria, two very similar environments, I feel. Mm, for sure. Uh, you know what they say about Austria? It's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> After being discharged in 1956, and we're going to get into the problems of Marshall Applewhite and discharging. Oh, uh, no. Well, just bear in mind, this is a young Texan boy who's real big on musical theater. So, <laughs> yeah, life, we didn't see this coming. Yeah, no. life, like, life probably wasn't real easy for, for old Herf. <laughs> now, he, he returned to the U.S., and he earned his master's at Colorado. He was known for his smooth baritone singing voice, Snappy dress and his love of Handel, spirituals, and, as you said, musical theater. Shortly after graduating, he met and soon married a fellow Texan named Ann Pierce, which, with whom he would go on to have two sons, Mark and Lane. Now, Applewhite and his family spent a short time in New York City as he attempted to launch a professional singing career, but family needs dictated that he pursue a steady job, and he took a position teaching at the University of Alabama's music department. There was one thing, though, that ended up causing a lot of problems for Applewhite over the next several years. He was bisexual. And, of course, coming up as a Presbyterian minister's son in Texas, going to a seminary and teaching at a university in the South in the 1960s, meant that he was deep in the closet. Roll Tide. (laughs) Yeah, I I grew up Presbyterian, and they are further to the left than a lot of Christian uh, denominations, but up until I think maybe six years ago, you could not be a pastor and anything other than vehemently heterosexual. How is one vehemently heterosexual, Kyle? You iron your jeans. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You, you only wear white New Balances. <laughs> <laughs> Tuck in your t-shirts. No belt. <laughs> I just I just pee straight fireball. <laughs> so, after a few years at Alabama, he lost his position on the faculty after it was discovered that he had been pursuing a relationship with a male student. Now, in 1965, Anne learned of the affair, and the couple then separated, and they would go on to actually divorce three years later. 
That same year, Applewhite moved to Houston to take a position as the head of the music department at the University of St. Thomas, a small Catholic college where I'm sure he'd have more success with the whole liking boys thing. Um, now, over the course, and I, I mean, actually, uh, adults, I'm not... I'm not <laughs> yeah, you weren't going there at all. That, no. that sound you heard was Rob backpedaling like a son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did better with my unlike, idea. <laughs> well, no. Unlike some cult leaders, Applewhite did not like kids. Mm. There were some out there who really, really did. Applewhite did not. The children of God are very disappointed in Applewhite. <laughs> Correct. Speaking of which, his kid Mark yeah. owns a bed and breakfast. And you can find it on the internet. Well, I know we're, we're going for our second live show recording. <laughs> Whenever we recycle our earthly vehicles. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So, over the course of the next several years, having lost his family, Applewhite begins to develop a casual interest in some more unusual material. He began to read a lot about aliens and UFOs, and he began to develop an, uh, a mild interest in both uh, the occult, even though there wasn't all that much material floating around in the mid-60s, and esotericism, which was beginning to circulate more and more as the 1960s went on and the, culture, and the counterculture began to take off. Now, at St. Thomas, Applewhite was well regarded by his students, he became a popular singer locally, serving as the choral director of a local Episcopal church and performing regularly with the Houston Grand Opera. So he was getting gigs. It was during this period, however, where Applewhite began to show signs of mental deterioration. What is going on, Chris? I'm trying so hard not to make myself <laughs> So we were talking about the bed and breakfast that I was going to ask if he used purple sheets. <laughs> And I was like, no, that's a fucked up thing to say. So, <laughs> so I'm trying not to laugh. I'm over here. There's just like tears coming out. Oh, God. It made it so much worse. Oh, my <laughs> so God. It was a good, like, 30 Ter- seconds. I was trying to maintain. Terry Clough jogging suits. Oh, God. <laughs> Away team patches. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Purple sheets. Oh, God. Like, I felt bad and caught myself, and then it just got so much worse. I look over, I look across the table, and Chris is almost falling out of his chair. Just doing the silent shake. I have moved all the... I'm sitting next to a bunch of picture frames. I moved all of them. Everything's crooked now. We're just sliding down the wall. So, where where the hell was Anywho. So, it was during this period where Applewhite began to show some signs of mental deterioration. Outside of his university life, he claimed he was openly gay, uh, frequenting Houston's surprising number of underground gay bars, but he also pursued a relationship with a young woman at the same time who actually ended up in getting engaged to him but then dumping him under pressure from her family, which greatly upset him. He was showing signs of being mentally jumbled and disorganized, and in 1970, he resigned from his position at St. Thomas, citing depression and other emotional problems. Although uh, sociologists Robert Balch and David Taylor speculate that another affair with a student may have prompted this departure. And Applewhite then descends into a bit of a tailspin. He moves briefly back to New Mexico where he ran a diner and was popular and well-liked by the locals, but he returned to Texas soon after. Early 1972, he gets another blow. His father dies, and that causes him to slide into even more severe depression. He was running up growing debts, he was constantly borrowing money from friends, and he was considering checking himself into a mental health facility. What we know is that sometime in 1972, Applewhite is at a hospital in Houston. We think we know. Why he was there, we don't really know for sure. Now, Applewhite said he was visiting a friend who was recovering from surgery. His sister stated that he had a severe heart blockage due to stress. And Evan Wright, the same journalist who ended up writing Generation Kill, surmised that Applewhite may have been checked in to help treat a severe schizophrenic event. Now, what happened next would change the course of Applewhite's life significantly. He met a nurse by the name of Bonnie Nettles. Bonnie Lou Trousdale was born on August 29, 1927 in Houston to a large, strict Baptist family, and her upbringing was loaded with that old-time religion, although Bonnie would go on to leave the faith later on in life. Uh, Obviously. Obviously. Now, she went on to become a registered nurse, and in December of 1949, married local businessman Joseph Siegel Nettles, and would go on to have four children with him. She had a good but unremarkable career as a nurse, but over time, she developed some more interesting beliefs. By the time she met Applewhite in 1972, her marriage was falling apart due to a belief that the spirit of a 19th century monk named Brother Francis frequently came to her, offering advice, instructions, and spiritual guidance. 
Nettles also began taking up with local mediums and participating in many seances attempting to contact the spirits of the dead with a focus on determining what happened at the moment of death. A medium circle began meeting at her house every Wednesday to discuss these matters. She became obsessed with astrology, eschatology, the occult, and particularly with a belief system known as theosophy. Now what theosophy is exactly is a belief system established in the late 19th century based around the writings of a woman who we will definitely cover sometime in the future named Madame Helena Blavatsky. Oh, Blavatsky. Particularly a pair of volumes on esoteric theory called The Secret Doctrine. Now these volumes laid out that humanity is ruled in secret by a cabal of super powerful beings known as the Ascended Masters. And that life on Earth arose not just from our own evolutionary track, but from seven root races, including a little group known as, uh-oh, the Aryans. This would go on to be the esoteric root of the belief system that would take root in Germany with groups like the Thule Society, mm -hmm. who we will also definitely cover in the future, and eventually gave rise to a belief system espoused by a troublesome little devil named Adolf Hitler. And that was Heinrich. the artist, right? Yeah. Uh, and, Heinrich, and Heinrich Himmler. Most Heinrich Himmler. I was going to say, Heinrich it was, technically speaking, it was more espoused by Himmler. Yeah. But... That's another series. Now, Bonnie also consulted multiple fortune tellers who told her she would meet a man who was tall with light hair and a fair complexion, a description that matched Applewhite's almost exactly. Well, she had joined the Theosophical Society of Houston, mm -hmm. but she didn't pay the dues. No. Nope. And I wonder, how expensive could the dues have possibly been? I mean, isn't that one, a, one of those places where you go down to the coffee clatch and here's $2. I mean, they can't have had that many members. I mean, it, I'm, I'm guessing it was actually quite a lot, because I'm guessing the Theosophical Society of Houston wasn't making up a lot of that shortfall by selling a ton of merch. No, that's I mean, true. Who knows? Yeah, new church they put in up the street from here as a merch table. True yeah. story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I got a cult in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, Applewhite himself would later write that, quote, Applewhite, he usually referred to himself in the third person in his writings, was visiting a hospitalized friend when Mrs. Nettles entered the room and their eyes locked in a shared recognition of esoteric secrets, end quote. He felt like he'd known her forever, concluding that they hadn't met in a past life. Nettles told Applewhite that their meeting had been foretold to her by extraterrestrials communicating psychically, which Applewhite believed may have been the ascended masters indicating he had divine assignment. She also read his star chart, discovering that it was very similar to her own, and they seemed destined to form a partnership. However, the hospital may not have even been the true venue for this meeting, and this is what I want to get into. As Terry Nettles, Bonnie's oldest child, stated that her mother met Applewhite at a local drama school while he was teaching singing lessons, and one of Bonnie's sons was one of his students. Such a cancer. <laughs> I'm a cancer. What does that say about me? Anyway... <laughs> So, regardless of how they actually met, soon Applewhite has moved in with Nettles, and they begin a deep, loving, although platonic relationship. Now, Applewhite always had a deep discomfort around sex, likely arising through the conflict in his life about his religious upbringing versus his sexuality, and was beginning to believe that sex was something that was an inherent weakness in human beings and was meant to be an, and was an obstacle meant to be overcome in order to achieve a higher state of being as a species. This would manifest in a very obvious way a few decades down the road. Now, he still, however, saw Bonnie as an emotional soulmate, and soon she finally divorced her husband, and Applewhite cut off all contact with his family, including his children. They began a partnership of codependence, and renowned psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton, who uh, did an amazing study of Om Shinrikyo, which I highly suggest you read, uh, who studied many, many cults in depth, also a lot of great writings about People's Temple, theorizes that Bonnie was responsible for the reinforcement of Applewhite's emerging delusional beliefs, whilst at the same time managing to keep him from suffering further psychological deterioration. Well, that would make sense because in later, and, I, and I'm sure we'll, we'll find that as, as we go through this study, he always saw himself as somehow subservient to Bonnie on the the master's plane, yes. you know, the, the level above human. Uh, we'll find that out later, but it, it makes a lot more sense when you get this history that of how they met and him being so excited to have his star chart read 
and there was the now there's this prophecy and there's things that she's telling him that inspire him so obviously she must be the old and she he refers to her this way several times as the older master yes well just think about how exciting it is when you meet somebody new who has a similar hobby to you who has a shared interest how how cool that can sometimes feel imagine how it feels for the two of them but i don't like crystals that's that's not what I meant. <laughs> okay, let's think of a hobby you do like. Let's let's say you run into somebody who um, excessively masturbates. Yes, who enjoys excessive masturbation. <laughs> Drinks a questionable what, amount of alcohol while dressed as a pirate at baseball games. You can find <laughs> us. You can find us on social media at podcast trr. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was clear that was that two people whose lives were very much in a state of flux had found each other at the right time. And they were both making their way into a world of esoteric study. Uh, Applewhite during this period began having visions, some of which told him he had been chosen for a role like that of Jesus and had several other quote-unquote spiritual experiences, possibly hallucinations. Uh, Robert Balch's essay refers to an account by a friend of Applewhite's who said, quote, He said a presence had given him all the knowledge of where the human race had come from and where it was going. It made you laugh to hear it, but Marshall was serious, and he didn't seem crazy, end quote. Uh, Balch also reports of Applewhite experiencing, quote, strange voices, bizarre dreams, and out-of-body experiences, end quote. Now, Applewhite didn't have the esoteric knowledge to interpret these visions, but Bonnie Nettles did. The two soon started a joint venture known as the Christian Arts Center, where they sold books and offered classes on topics such as astrology, meditation, mysticism, theosophy, healing, metaphysics, art, and, of course, because Marshall's involved, music. Although Applewhite and Nettles were part of a booming new cultural interest in the esoteric that was, in part, a reaction to the failure of the hippie counterculture, the venture wasn't well managed and soon failed, and soon uh, Nettles and Applewhite moved out into rural Texas to found a retreat center they named No Place, that's (laughs) K-N-O-W. There, the, student, the classes on mysticism and esoterica continued. I almost said erotica. That's wrong. Yeah! <laughs> and they began to work individually with students, showing the beginnings of their cult leader mentalities. The, just the roots of it. They also focused intensively on their own spiritual development, particularly in relation to ufology and Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine. Over this period, the two wannabe spiritual leaders created a religious identity that began to fully coalesce, as a mixture of theosophy, New Age spiritualism, ufology, and Christian eschatology. Now, that is a key part. Although, I, I, I still think it's funny that they called it the Christian Arts Center and had very, very little to do with Christianity. Well, what I find interesting is that they build a center that deals with the occult, astrology, I know, crystals, things like that, <laughs> in This is my text- salt lamps. Salt lamps. In- in Texas, look, if I was going to set up, I don't know, uh, a Bible center, I'm not going to set it up in the middle of Haight-Ashbury. Same goes here. If you're going to set up this new age center, why are you picking West Texas? Yeah. I mean, I know that's where they were, but yeah, I don't think this was a good business model. Cheap property? It's not. Yeah, like, they didn't have a lot of money at the time. Yeah, and you could probably oh, get no, a decent amount of well, And it's not like yeah. Texas is unheard of to be associated with cults. I mean, Waco. Yeah, is right down there too. Well, I mean, I mean, it's a big state. What's his name? The guy who's, who started Children of God. He came out of Texas. Yep, he was a Texan. Um, there were a lot of cult leaders that come from Texas. Actually, we can explore that further down the road. So uh, they began a correspondence with a Filipino occultist who shared with them lessons in Hindu mysticism and concurred with them that they had a special mission on Earth that they were meant to accomplish. The mystic gave them new names, calling Bonnie Nettles Shakti Devi, meaning powerful goddess, and Applewhite Shri Pranava, meaning auspicious mantra. They what a shit name. Yeah. <laughs> like, hers is so much better. I'd Wait. be so mad. So she's powerful goddess and I'm... Really? 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 Yeah. Now they she's a goddess, I'm a I'm mantra, a, fuck yourself. I'm one step up. <laughs> These people with their crazy beliefs, now let's go get in our comet spaceship and fuck out of here. That, that's like one step above namaste. <laughs> I like that beer. So, yes, the dogfish head, sponsor us. You know you want to. 
We're talking about cults. You guys like that shit, right? So they wouldn't go by these names for long, but the effect would last longer than they first thought. Now soon, no place was closed down, and Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles were about to take their show on the road. No longer would they just be two individuals named Marshall and Bonnie. They would become the two, and so many other names besides, as they took off down the road to acquire followers and begin running a full-blown cult. And that's the part of the story we will tell next time, in part two of our story of Heaven's Gate. So, wow, your thoughts, gentlemen? It's really going to take off from here. I mean, like, we discussed an awful lot. We covered an awful lot. Yeah. But this is really going to... It's going to hit another gear. It is. Like it's, and, ve- and in very Ooh. short order. Well, and much like much like the gearing in a car, you have to have the first gear before you can get into, mm-hmm. you know, before you can get into the engine. That's true. It's, yeah, it, it's... We do we do see the roots of what makes these these two the people they are. We definitely see it, but there's something going into the 70s that we're going to explore next time where they really, really start coming into their own. And for some reason, they, they find... I mean, what I would what I would describe, that you know, the numbers they pull down are huge. We're not talking people's temple numbers. We're not talking Scientology or Latter-day Saints numbers. But considering the belief system that they are peddling, the amount of success they find with it is extraordinary. Absolutely. Never underestimate a leader who believes their own shit. Well, that's another discussion we're going to have is how much exactly did they believe their own shit. And one of the uh, things that's... Lo- some of the people we'll talk about, I'm, I'm going to say that, that that figure is very low. Mm-hmm. Applewhite's that dude. Yeah. Applewhite is a bit more... It's not black and white as to whether he believes or not. I think it's yeah. a much more question of a gray... It's, I think there are elements in which he does believe. I think there are elements in which he doesn't. I think he Apple, vacillates between the two. Applewhite removed his own genitals. In a, that's only the, like, balls. only the balls. Only the balls. Only the balls. He wasn't fully gelded. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to feel like Applewhite was all in on this one. So, well, and, and one of the things I think is... I think is important as we talk about the People's Temple and we talk about Scientology and some of these and uh, Koresh and the Branch Davidians. I think one of the things that I find interesting that sets this apart and it's laying the groundwork for it and what we were discussing earlier about how they met is the joy that the followers of Heaven's Gate seem to have. As opposed, it's what separates it from the other suicide cults that we've looked at in studying this and trying to understand it and get our heads around it. Um, I think that's going to be interesting for the next couple episodes. Yeah. Is what is it that made you happily get castrated? Yeah, everybody enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I, and some some people pers- left and they left under their own volition and it was fine. Like quite a few people left. Personally, if you know, if we're if, if I'm going to join a cult, it's going to be like a Bob Crane sex cult. That's how I'm going out. <laughs> well, yeah, we're going to explore that a lot next time. Is how do Nettles and Applewhite create the conditions in which people so happily do this? How about we just do the Bob Crane sex cult? That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> you know what, Applewhite? You're on a bench. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the Bob Crane sex cult on the list. Oh, Bob Crane. I think he just shouted out, Hogan! Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) And there was cocaine. Yeah. See, I'd go to church. Like it was the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there was cocaine. There was was cocaine and loose pubic hair. We've been over this. We talked about this in D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Just, just Just cocaine and pubes everywhere. So... On that note, um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Again, part one of a of a three part series. It's gonna it's gonna get a little weirder from from here on out. Um, it's yeah, the, the story is going to get harrowing. So brace yourselves. Um, yeah, if you want to follow us on social media, I know we had a couple trick starts there, uh, Chris. <laughs> I they know where to find us on Twitter. Yeah, uh, you can follow us. At, <laughs> you, can follow, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast trr. On Instagram, you can find us at trr pod. 
Uh, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades is all you need to search on Facebook. If you want to go ahead and shoot us an email, if you know anything about the Bob Crane sex cult, any links, any videos, we'd love to watch them. Uh, that's trrpod at gmail.com. Also use that if you would like to join our cult. What are we going to call it? We'll just call it a derivative of TRR Pod so that we don't have to change. We'll just we keep all the followers. We can nice. call them the, our followers could be the pod people. Ooh. <laughs> just TRR audio. Ooh. Ooh. And, if, because, <laughs> uh, and another thing that we're, we're going to get, we'll get into, into that with, next uh, time. with cults is uh, uh, financial instability. Uh, Jim Jones was really good at that because he just straight up took all your shit. Yeah. If you would like for us to take all your shit, you can look no further than <laughs> www.patreon.com slash trrpod. Yes, if you, you would you. like to ascend to the, the next level <laughs> of human evolution, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. <laughs> $1 a month? I think we're undercutting them a little bit. Five dollars a month, and we won't even make you cut your own balls off. Kyle will do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, I I have a questionable amount of knives. <laughs> <laughs> That's our boy. Well, yes. he's just got a couple. That's all. <laughs> so yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you to Michael Arnett and Kyle Graper for joining us, guys. Thank you, absolutely. Guys. Always um, a pleasure. Hope uh, I, I know you guys are probably planning on being here for the next uh, for actually all three parts of this. I know. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. It's getting the band getting the band on the road. So yes, of course, please tune in next time for uh, Heaven's Gate Part Two and uh, hold fast onto them balls if you don't want them to be cut off. Down the cursed deep.